0: Amen. Take your Bibles now, if you would, please, and turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 17. And our sermon text for this morning is found in verses 14 to 21. Now, before we leave, I have to make an editorial note. I want you to look at your Bible and you find there verse 20. And then look for verse 21, and you'll see it's not there. All right, some of you, um, this makes it difficult for the preacher. (laughs) Um, So, just an explanatory note in in way more of a synopsis than it deserves. Um, And I wrote it down so I could be as succinct as I could be. Uh, Modern Bible translations move the 21st verse of Matthew 17 from the text into the margin. Some of you, it may be in brackets. Now, if you have a King James Version, the only pure text available uh, is still there, all right? Um, Some of you, but in the ESV, if you're reading from the ESV like I am, it's in the margin. Um, They do that to show you their doubt that that verse is original to Matthew. Um, In other words, some Bible translators believe this verse was added to the Scriptures later, and not in some kind of malevolent way. Nobody was trying to pervert the Scriptures. This assumption is, in some sense, completely arbitrary. In other words, they aren't flipping a coin... Uh, Is not completely arbitrary. In other words, they're not flipping a coin to decide whether a verse should be included or left out. Translators perform detailed comparisons of tens, literally tens of thousands of transcripts of the scriptures from all various different kinds of regions, from Ethiopia to Alexandria to Italy to Europe. They've got tens of thousands of manuscripts. That they compare. In the case of Matthew 17, 21, some of the older and better, in other words, they're not torn apart, they're not just fragments of phrases, manuscripts, do not contain this verse. Therefore, the translators include it in the margin or put it in brackets. How and why should some, would, would some manuscripts add a verse to the scriptures? That's a good question. If it was added, and that's debatable, it was pulled over from Mark nine twenty nine, where Mark wrote, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so this morning, we are going to treat this verse as though it's belonging in the text, because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark included it. If the Um, copyists brought it over from Mark we have certainty that Jesus spoke it because it's there and I know that's clear as mud and maybe at some point we'll have more time to to talk about that Um, but that's why it's included in the brackets so let's read now Matthew chapter 17 verses 14 to 21 hear now the word of the living God and when they came to the crowd a man came up to him And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, in some sense, this is the most important time of our week. This is the time when our Heavenly Father has called out to His children saying, come, gather around, let me feed you. Nourish us, O Lord, on the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. We thank You for Your Word and for the way that You have caused it to be preserved through all time. To give Your people hope and comfort, strength, conviction, And we ask now, Lord, for the work of your Spirit, acknowledging, apart from that, these are merely words on the page. So we ask for your blessing through Jesus Christ and for the sake of his glory, amen. Um, As we come to our passage of Scripture this morning, we remember that Over the past few weeks, we've observed Jesus at the summit of the mountain, and I keep bringing you back to this. We've observed Him at the summit of the mountain, where three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were given a preview of Jesus in His ascended glory. And so what that means is, they saw Jesus as He is right now, in in our flesh, in the heavenly Jerusalem, seated on His throne. His glory no longer veiled by the flesh, as we just sang, no longer veiled by the flesh, but revealed in its fullness, receiving the worship of men and angels and upholding the universe by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.3 Last week we observed Him coming down the mountain. And what we learned is that John the Baptist's arrival when he was born, when he came onto the scene, that, that was a signal. It's like the bat signal going up in, into the universe, declaring something. John the Baptist is here. He's come in the Spirit and the power of Elijah. It signaled the restoration of all things. Not the renovation. The restoration. In other words, God is in His way gradually bringing us back to the blessings of Eden where we dwell with Him securely and eternally. And He gives us all things in Christ. Particularly, this means that according to Malachi's prophecy, God will restore family order and in turn restore all things. And so one of the most radical things Christians can do is marry, settle down, and raise their children to fear and honor the Lord. That's a very radical thing. What needs to be restored? What what needs to take place? In other words, on a practical level, what what is put out of joint, in other words? Um, what needs to be fixed? What is the Spirit of God doing in the people of God? That's what we look at this morning. We're going to think about what needs to be restored and what needs to take place. And, and the main point we'll, we'll take away from this passage, verses 17 to 20, or 14 to 21, is that when God's people demonstrate faithlessness... They receive God's particular anger, but the smallest expressions of faith, think about this, the smallest expressions of true faith receive all of God's power and wisdom. Three points. We will see faithlessness revealed, faithlessness rebuked, and then finally, faithfulness exhorted. Notice with me in verses 14 to 16 and also in verse 18, faithlessness revealed. Let's let's notice what happens here. Jesus is coming down the mountain in verse 14, and as he comes down, he's having this conversation with his disciples. Luke, in in his, his edition, this is the next day after the transfiguration. They've gotten down to the bottom of the mountain and, and Jesus rejoins all of the other disciples and these crowds. And at this moment, perhaps as he's, he's walking up, there's this tremendous hubbub. Matthew, Matthew doesn't talk about any of that. He wants to focus you in on this interaction between Jesus and this man and this demonized boy. And what we learn is that this man comes out to Jesus and he kneels down to him and he calls him Lord and he asks him to have mercy upon his son. You remember the Canaanite woman that we met just a few weeks ago? Jesus had had taken a side journey up to the region of Tyre and she comes out to him and she says, Lord help. And Jesus responds by ignoring her and he keeps walking and the disciples say, get rid of her. And he says, you know the, do- the the bread is for for the children, not for the dogs, and she says, "Well, even the dogs eat the crumbs and Jesus says, "What faith? Wow, and he healed her daughter there's a there 's a parallel here here he 's coming not to the pagan godless nation, but he 's coming to god 's own people, to the Israelites, and he finds a man kneeling before him, pleading with with him for mercy for his Son, And it's it's in this moment that you and I see Israel's condition revealed. And as we'll see in this moment, Jesus makes a very profound prognosis or diagnosis of the condition of His people. What are they like? Well, what we find is that his son, in verse 18, his son's condition, which is called epilepsy, in verse 15, or, or literally, literally, he is moonstruck. And I spent way too much time delving into what that meant this week. It's the word from which we get lunatic, luna, moon, tick. Tick. So in the King James Version, it will say, my son is not a lunatic, but he is lunatic. He is moonstruck. And so our translations bring this over as epilepsy. He has these fits. In Mark's Version, he will describe this boy as going into these episodes where he foams at the mouth And the father says he will fall into the fire or he'll fall into the water. These these two opposites, perhaps just meaning the extremes. He's he's endangering himself. Uh, His life is in danger because of his condition. And epilepsy is sort of a a category under this broad idea of being moonstruck. Now, we can think of this in in purely naturalistic terms and you can say, okay well, th- these were just people who didn't have the advantages of modern medicine. They're trying to explain things in terms that they could in- understand. Um, and so they just they, they think that moon phases somehow affect the behavior of this boy. And so they just, here's a word, he's moonstruck. But I want to I share just one thing with you. Um, we've talked about Mount Hermon. One of the things that we haven't talked about is the fact that with, within the vicinity of Mount Hermon, there are 20 sacred sites for pagan worship. According to the book of Enoch, it is on to Mount Hermon where in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God, the angels... Intermixed with the sons of man and bred giants. It was on Mount Hermon that this happened. In Jesus' day, it went by the name of, at the base of the mountain, it went by the name of Panim. Because the Greeks asserted that the god Pan lived in this region, the goat man. And they worshipped him at the base of Mount Hermon by taking living individuals and throwing them into this great chasm at the base of Mount Hermon. And if they drowned, if they went to the bottom, the sacrifice was accepted. If they found blood in the pools, the sacrifice had been rejected. All of this simply making the point to you that with, with generation, after generation after generation, this particular area was a godless, pagan area to the point, in fact, where this great chasm at the base of Mount Hermon, where the Jordan River originates, that place was called the gates of hell. Now you understand why Jesus would say to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against my people. Your understanding of all of this is what? This is a place of great demonic activity. And Israel is not exempt from it. This is the place where Jeroboam I, the king under whom Israel was divided between ten and two tribes, It was in this place where he set up one of his golden calves for Israel to play the harlot. This is one of the places where he dismissed all of the Levitical priests and recruited priests to come in and lead the people of God in worship to all of these other deities, which we know are not deities, they are demons. This is a sacred place, and what what we find is that Israel is not only subjected to godless rulers in the sense of Caesars, Israel's been made subject to demons. Haven't you seen it over and over and over when the people come to Jesus? What are they bringing to him? They're bringing demonized people. Though they were born to all the privileges of God, like the pagan nations, they are now subjected to Satan's dominion. God disciplines them by giving them over. And this is the result of rejection. They've chosen rather to worship Baal by the way whose altar was set up where? On Mount Hermon rather than the one true God. Not to worship God and pursue His glory is to embrace Satan. It is imperative for you and me also to remember that our plight is not merely natural. We fret over politics We fret and ask God to give us godly leaders, and we should. But when we pray, deliver us from evil, we are asking the Lord to subdue Satan's power and cause the power of Christ to grow and be demonstrated. Let me just ask you to think about a couple of things here. We are asking the Lord to deliver us from the devil's power. Do you know that we are witnessing a rise in devil worship in our own country? Just recently, a satanic temple was destroyed. Displayed where? In Iowa's state capitol. Satanic after-school clubs are on the rise. They have a handbook. And their website lists as one of their primary enemies good news clubs. You've seen various concerts where demonic imagery is portrayed. This is not just the things of fancy and myth and fable. The Scriptures remind us that demonic power is a very real power. It is a power that can be manifested in fleshly ways. And in this scene, exhibits itself in this man's son. The myth... Of a neutral approach to God's creation is coming home to rest. To treat creation as neutral, that it is just as legitimate to treat it as uncreated as created, is to deny God the glory that is his due, and we are witnessing his displeasure. In other words, what are we saying? that Israel rebelled against God, they rejected Him as their husband, and He gave them over, not to some neutral ground, but they were given over into the power of the devil. Whereas the devil had ruled over the nations up to this point and held them in His own power and grasp, whereas God rescued Israel and made them His people and hedged them in from that power, now they are just like all the other nations. They are Lucifer's people. And this is demonstrated in this scene. And this is why in this next moment, Jesus doesn't just deliver this boy from epilepsy. He doesn't give him a pill. He casts out a demon. And he rebukes their faithlessness. Christ reveals their faith, faithlessness uh, To begin with, and then he rebukes it. Look with me at verse 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. I don't know. We don't know what Jesus' tone was here. Was it sharp? Was it pointed? How long am I to be with you? Bring him here to me. I, reading this, sometimes think of my dad when I would let the flashlight beam slip just over to the right place and he takes my hand and pulls it back. Shine it there. Jesus diagnoses Israel's condition here. Do you see it? What does he call them? Faithless and twisted. Faithless literally means that they are an unbelieving people. You are unbelieving. You're not God's faithful people. You're not the ones who give yourselves to His law, who seek in every way, in every aspect of your life, to follow His commands. You're not those people. You are faithless. And you are twisted. Literally, perverse This term is used to describe one in Luke 23 who misleads. You think of a roller coaster and how you're going along the track and all of a sudden it twists and turns you upside down. You're twisted. It's used of one who turned men away from the faith in Acts chapter 13 and one who makes the paths of the Lord crooked. Paul applies the term twisted or perverse to the unregenerate world. When in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And then Jesus says something that we might think is unthinkable. I am tired of putting up with you. How long will I have to be with you? How long will I have to literally bear you on my shoulders like a burden? Here we remember that when Israel grew faithless, God departed from them. You think of Ezekiel 10 and his visions there of of the presence of God lifting up from the tabernacle and going to the edge of the city and then lifting up from the city and departing from Israel. Jesus is demonstrating the divine displeasure of God against this people. I don't want to be with you anymore. I want to be not Emmanuel. And Jesus demonstrates here, I think this is so important for us. Jesus demonstrates that this people among whom he walks are in the same condition as the people of the prophets of the people who lived with Ahab and Jezebel. They are not a people who are repentant, whose hearts have been turned back to the Lord. They are twisted, they are perverse, they are faithless. Though they are Jews by birth, they are godless pagans spiritually. They have embraced everything that the world embraces. There's no distinction between them. Whatever the world's goals are, that's what they engage in. And Christ does not delight in them. He reproaches them. Just as the Canaanite woman's faith caused Jesus to stop and respond, so Israel's faithlessness draws his impatience toward them. And remember, this is important. Jesus is the God-man who is blameless and incapable of sinning against the Lord. He cannot sin. And so even in this expression of indignation toward this people, he is doing it in a holy and blameless way. And I, I think, as I read this, I think there's such a challenge here for you and me to understand Jesus correctly... This is the meek and mild Christ who's turning toward this people and showing them his displeasure. He's not a passive pushover. In a sense, Jesus in this moment is reenacting Moses' descent from Sinai. You remember Moses came down in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses comes down with the tablets after God has said what's going on down in the camp. And he comes down and what does he find Israel doing? Fornicating. Worshipping a golden calf. And Moses in that moment took the two tablets and threw them down. And they shattered at the feet of the people. Jesus is reenacting that Moses moment. Saying, this generation is the same as that one. Some will wonder, as Jesus says, look back at the text with me, in verse seventeen. Oh, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. Jesus' anger is not manifested at, at the man per se. Maybe his anger is manifested at the disciples. Others will say, Well, maybe Jesus' anger is, is demonstrated at, at the scribes because they had been in here and probably mocking the disciples for not being able to cast out the demon. Ha <laughs> ha, where's your master now? kind of thing. But for us, Jesus lifts his vision, lifts his eyes from this man, and he looks out at everybody gathered around him, and he says, all of you are twisted and perverse. The scribes are twisted and perverse, and so are you because you listen to them and you have rejected the Lord your God. Jesus demonstrates God's expectation that His people will walk in humble submission to Him. And I think this is what we, you and I should take away from this part of Jesus' exhortation. Yes, Christ is meek and mild and He, he greets even the smallest fragment of sincere faith with all of His comfort. But remember that Jesus, when He returns to earth, comes with a sword that sheds real blood, that Revelation describes His garments as soaked, not in wine, but in in blood. God is both merciful and just, but He reminds us over and over and over again that He is not to be toyed with. This reminds us of our deep need for the reconciling work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That He will not be covered in our blood if you and I are covered in His. Here, His words are so sharp. Not against a pagan people, but against the So called people of God. Through Christ, God calls his people to walk in faithfulness to him. Thirdly, we see faithfulness exhorted in verses 19 to 21. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and at this point it it looks like he's back in Capernaum, back in probably Peter's home and he's speaking to his disciples and they come to him privately and ask him, why could we not cast it out? They should have known the answer by now because he said this so many times. He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, "Move from here to there," and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I'm going to challenge you here that if you have, if you have, if 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 you you're familiar with the saving the saying, "Faith moves mountains." Well, there's a very important aspect of that creation that that saying leaves or that statement that. That, that statement leads, leaves out. Let me, that was terrible. Let me try that again. There's a very important aspect that saying leaves out. Because it gives us the impression that somehow if I have sufficient faith, I can move a mountain. That's not what Jesus is saying. You can't do anything. You see, Jesus comes and he humbles his disciples and he says, why couldn't we do it? Well, you, you didn't have enough faith. You lacked faith. That's the deficiency. You're not trusting the Lord sufficiently. In other words, you think you can do it. You remember the story of the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts? And these, these Jewish men come along and they're going to cast a demon out. And, and all these brothers are gathered in this room, and perhaps you can hear them saying, I command you in the name of Paul. And that doesn't work. So they say, well, let's try the name of Jesus. I command you in the name of Jesus. And so they, they're thinking that all, all the power of Jesus is just is engaged by employing His name. And they they treat it like a trinket. They treat it like it's um, some kind of magic incantation or spell that they're casting and the demon has to obey. And what winds up happening is the demon shreds them. All their clothes are torn off and they run out of the house naked because the demon said, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but I don't know you. They're not joined to Christ by faith. Jesus humbles His disciples he says you're, you're resting in yourselves. You think that I've authorized you as you to do these things. That now some sort of incantation rests upon you and you can cast out the devils and the demons like the pagans do. That's not it. I'm not calling you to use your power, to trust in your power, to say, oh, now we've we've worked out, we've developed some biceps now, we've been walking with Jesus, we're able to do these things. No, the life of God's followers is demonstrated in humble reliance upon Him in all things. The faithful confession is, I can do nothing in and of myself, but God can do great things through me. And what He does instructs His disciples here is that tiny. Listen, it's not great faith. Not even great faith. But the mustard seed kind of faith. Small faith. That moment where you are saying, Lord, I don't understand my situation. I'm, I'm barely keeping my nose above water here. And, but I know that You're capable of doing all things. And, and so I give myself wholeheartedly to You. Lord, do with me what You will. Just, just be with me. Like the Canaanite woman, all she could pray was what? Help me, Lord, help me. That's all she had. And that little expression of faith garnered all of the compassion of Christ. He didn't look at her and say, how long will I be with you? He stopped. This is what's happening. They're all gathered around, all these Jews, these apostate people, and they're trying to cast out this demon, and nobody stops to say, God, help us. No one did that. The disciples didn't do that. The people didn't do it. Nobody ever stopped to say, well, let's ask the Lord for help. That's why verse 21 is supposed to be in here, because this kind doesn't come out but by prayer and fasting. And therefore, he says, nothing will be impossible for you. As I, as I read those words, I see the time. As I read those words, there was another significant moment when God said them, and it was at, Mount, at, it was at Babel, when the people were trying to build their own mountain. God said, if we don't do something, nothing will be impossible for them. And so he cursed and gave people over and subjugated them to demons. And here it is the people of God for whom nothing will be impossible. Think of Genesis 18. 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. God can give a son to a 100-year-old man. Deuteronomy 17, if any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And even in matters of justice where you, you find that, that your wisdom fails, I don't know what to do. What do you do? You cry out to the Lord. Ask him for help. Ask him. Job in Job 42 he said I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted and you see here's what the Lord is saying when you have the smallest nugget of faith what is the change the change is this I ask God for help I don't do anything in life without consulting him what is your will for me how can I obey you in this thing Lord, help me. I'm about to perish. Help me. Be with me. The man who does that does not receive the rebuke of Christ. He receives his comfort. No task that is assigned to you by the Lord will be impossible for you to perform when you remain in trustful contact with Him. (laughs) No burden will be too heavy for you to bear. Remember? Isn't this what Paul said? I've learned. With God... All things are possible, Jesus will say in chapter 19, verse 26. Paul could say, I can do all things through him who infuses strength into me. The man who would access the power and wisdom of God must be a man of faith. The man of faith will exhibit it by seeking the Lord's wisdom and will in all things. When God's people demonstrate faithlessness, they receive God's particular anger. But the smallest expressions of faith enjoy all of His power and wisdom. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, oh, how we ask that You would forgive us and strengthen us. We ask, Lord, that You would enable us to do the most impossible thing which is that our affections would be translated from ourselves and building our own kingdom and making a name for ourselves to you and making your name great. Would you do that in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.